Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have another talk from our recent Theopolitan Ministry Conference. And here, Kyle Lamott is going to be discussing the food of Christ, the wedding reception at Sikar. Kyle is the pastor of Exodus Church in Wichita, Kansas, and is a recent graduate of the Theopolis Fellows Program. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are edified by this time of teaching. And here is Kyle Lamott discussing the food of Christ. Well, thank you. Uh, this has just been such a blessing for me, uh, as I'm sure it has been for you. Each of these lectures have been encouraging, challenging, uh, and I'm excited to bring what I've learned back to my church and share it with them as well. Uh, for the last 10 months, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John, and through this time, it has been a constant reminder of God's goodness, of His glory, of His beauty. Working through John's Gospel has been exhilarating, challenging, and worshipful all at the same time. I've tried to explain to our church that we ought to view the Gospel of John like a massive crystal lake. A lake that is so calm that you can see the top uh, reflecting the trees around it. It looks like a piece of glass. And as we work our way through this Gospel, uh, you could imagine rowing on a canoe and there's very little turbulence, there's very little struggle to get through it. Yet, when we look down into the water, we see that it is incredibly deep. And as we look further and peer into the murkiness of the waters, we see shapes of the creation account in Genesis 1. We see shadows of the temple and the tabernacle and the priesthood. We hear uh, the, the echoes of the prophets. Uh, we see King David. We see the patriarchs. All of these things start to come out of the waters. That is the Gospel of John. So simple, a child can go across the top. Yet, it leaves scholars and pastors and theologians scratching their heads as they peer into the depths that is this gospel. John is, in a, he is an imaginative storyteller. He weaves the story of Israel's scriptures into the very fabric of his gospel. And he does so with very few quotes or actual um, phrases or sentences that come from the pages of the Old Testament, but rather he does so through images and types and shadows. John's gospel is a story that contains many stories. There are multiple coexisting stories within his gospel. We see the story of creation and the story of the new creation, the story of the exodus and the story of the new exodus. The story of the temple and the story of the new temple. Together with Revelation, the Gospel of John tells the story of the bridegroom and his bride. John presents Christ as one who embodies in himself the story of Israel's scriptures, from the creation account all the way to the post-exilic prophets. As Richard Hayes notes, John reads the entirety of the Old Testament as a web of symbols that must be understood as figural signifiers for Jesus and the life that he offers. John tells the story of the Old Testament as a story that points us and prepares us for Christ. As I mentioned, the temple gives way to the new temple that is Christ. 
The great feasts of Israel's worship are transformed to be seen as signs and symbols pointing us to Christ. The Exodus, the manna in the wilderness, the stories of Abraham and Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, and more, all transfigured from the waters of the old into the wine of the new. Augustine has a beautiful homily on John chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana, and he sees the the six stone jars filled with water as representing the old covenant. And when Christ comes, he transforms the waters, he transforms the content of the Old Testament into the wine of the new. And John chapter 4 is no exception to this. Jesus not only weaves together a type scene from the Old Testament, recorded by John, and not only does he echo back to the love song of Solomon, but he also paints another picture of Christ and his bride that are restlessly waiting for the fully realized glorified bride to descend from heaven in the book of Revelation. One of John's favorite stories to tell throughout his gospel is the love story of Christ and his bride. The love story is woven together throughout the gospel from beginning to end. In fact, John even bookends his gospel with this theme. Again, in John chapter 2, we see the first miracle of Jesus at a wedding where he turns the water into wine. This is the inaugural uh, miracle or sign of his ministry. And then, at the end of John's gospel, we see Jesus in a garden. We see Jesus as a new bridegroom, a new Adam, and Mary is there as well as a new Eve, as a type of the church. The love story is woven throughout, even within the story of the transformation of the water to wine. Uh, we see Jesus assuming the role of the bridegroom. It is the bridegroom's responsibility to make sure that the wine does not run out at the wedding. If it runs out, there is great shame potentially for the rest of their lives uh, because of this error. So Jesus assumes the role of the great bridegroom who makes sure that there is more than enough wine for this wedding. Yet, he says, his hour has not yet come. In John chapter 4, we see the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman developed in the form of a wedding. It is an eschatological wedding. It is eschatological forward thinking in nature as it is a preview of the great wedding that is to come. The final wedding that we see at the end of Revelation where Jesus and his bride are finally united in glory. John 4, 1 through 42, the story of the woman at the well reads as a type scene from the Hebrew scriptures. This type scene introduces love and marriage through the meeting at a well. And then it therefore places the woman from Samaria as the typological bride, a representative not only of the Samaritan people, but also of the nations, the ethnos of all the world. She is united with her true bridegroom, through whom many children are produced, the converted Samaritans. The love story of John 4 is actually introduced for us in John chapter 3. Introduced to John chapter 3. So what I want to do in this talk is work through John chapter 4. I would put forward that this is more than just a type scene introduced by Jesus and this woman meeting at a well, which indeed is a type scene from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But it is more than that. 
Rather, this marriage theme, this bride and bridegroom union, is played out and developed all the way through the story. We'll see that there's a wedding announcement in chapter 3. The bridegroom arrives at the beginning of chapter 4. We then see a wedding gift, a wedding vow, and finally the wedding feast. This can also be connected with uh, the redemption of Christ in the order in which he comes with the prophetic utterances as the wedding announcement of Old Testament prophets culminating with John the Baptist, as we will see here in chapter 3. The bridegroom arrives in the form of an incarnation. There is a wedding gift, mainly the Holy Spirit. There is a wedding vow, the new covenant, and finally the wedding feast, which would be the Eucharist. So at the end of chapter 3, we see this introduction, this announcement, this wedding announcement go out. And this announcement is heralded by John the Baptist. At the end of chapter 3, John and his disciples are baptizing. And his disciples become somewhat jealous, somewhat concerned, because there's a new rabbi on the scene. And this new rabbi and his disciples are baptizing more than John. So his faithful disciples are concerned for their fearless leader, John the Baptist, and they are worried that his influence might be slipping some because of this new character on the scene. John responds to his disciples and explains to them that it is good and right that Jesus, the Christ, does what he is doing. Why? Because he is the bridegroom, and the bridegroom must have the bride. So John actually introduces this language for us in chapter 3, verse 29, where John the Baptist says, The one who has the bridegroom, or excuse me, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So here, John puts forward very simply for us that Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the one that the bride belongs to. John's role, the Baptist's role, is the role of best friend. He is the friend of the bridegroom. He is the one who loves and protects the bride for the groom. He is jealous not for the affections of the bride or the bride's attention, but rather his jealousy is for the groom himself. He wants to make sure that the bride clings to the groom and the groom alone. Thus, the famous words of John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. John is put forward here as the perfect friend. He is the one who never tries to step into the role of the groom in an inappropriate way. He does not want the attention of the bride. He wants the bride to look to Christ. Again, in verse 29, he says that the bridegroom, or the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John, contrary to his disciples, did not have jealousy. He had joy with Jesus being there baptizing many, though not Jesus, but his disciples. You know, pastors and leaders today, like John, play a very important role of the friend. We are to look over the well-being of the bride. We are to present her mature and beautiful to Christ, the true groom. In the celebrity culture in which we live in today, I think John the Baptist's words are a welcomed anchor and reminder. We live in a day where both the friend 
and the bride tend to enjoy taking their eyes off of the groom and they begin to look at each other. Now, celebrity culture within the church is one that always ends in an affair between the bride and the friend. And I'm not just talking about Hillsong culture. This same temptation and this same struggle is in the hearts of conservative, reformed pastors as well. Pastors, leaders, influencers who long for the affections of the bride will end up receiving the destruction of the jealous husband. We ought to remember the words of King Solomon when he says, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? John the Baptist is our example here. He wants the attention, the love, the praise to be given to Christ, the true groom. He is not trying to carve out an inappropriate place in the bride's life. Rather, he is fully rejoicing that the bride has found the arms of her true husband. But not only that, we must likewise rejoice with John when we see the bride look to the groom and fall into the groom's arms. I so appreciated Dr. Lightheart's talk yesterday as I don't know about you, but it felt like he put up a mirror and has called me as a pastor to look into it and make sure I see the reflection rightly, to see what the Bible says about a shepherd, not to listen to uh, the culture and how it might shape that ideal for us, but rather see what the scripture says about what it is to be a shepherd, a pastor. And as a shepherd and as a pastor, uh, I and we ought to be holding up a mirror to the bride so that she likewise can see who she actually is in light of Christ, who she is in Christ. We are to lift the bride's veil so that she can see her Redeemer rightly, pull back the veil so she can see into the Holy of Holies. So this sets the stage for us in chapter 4. Jesus is established as the bridegroom at the end of chapter 3. And we see the bridegroom come to claim his bride in John chapter 4. The bridegroom arrives in verses 1 through 6. I'll read verses 1 through 4 for us. It says, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. The reason Jesus had to pass through Samaria had nothing to do with geographical necessity. He could have taken the road that the Romans built, which many Jews at that time would take, to go around Samaria, yet the text says he had to pass through Samaria. This is a divine necessity. He had to go through Samaria because he is the bridegroom, and the bridegroom must get his bride. Verses 5 and 6 say, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So he comes to Jacob's well, wearied as he was from his journey, he sits down. And at this point, if we press our ears closely to the text, we begin to hear the wedding bells ring. The reason for this is because of the type scenes of the Old Testament, where wells are notorious as hookup spots where men find their wives. This well is called Jacob's well, and it just so happened that Jacob found his wife, Rachel, at a well. 
Not only Jacob, but Isaac, Jacob's father, found his wife, Rebekah, at a well. And not only Jacob and Isaac, but Moses, likewise, found his wife at a well. Again, wells are the hotspots. If you are thinking about uh, cultivating or creating a singles ministry in your church, I would encourage you to call it the well, so we can get these people together and they can get married. The connection between wells and love and marriage are found in wisdom literature as well. In Proverbs, we see Solomon warning his son to avoid the strange woman when he writes, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. And in the Song of Solomon, the bride is described as a garden fountain, a well of living water and streams from Lebanon. There's other places as well. So wells are symbolically loaded throughout the scriptures, a place of love, of weddings, of marriage. So what John is doing is setting a scene for us so that we ought to remember John the Baptist's words of Christ in chapter 3. He is the bridegroom. The bridegroom is now come to a well, wearied from his journey, he sits down, and we must be waiting for the bride to arrive. This is what the next step is. And in verse 7, we see the arrival of the bride. Verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. This particular Samaritan woman had lived a particularly heartbreaking life. She is one who was despised and thrown aside as an unwanted bride. This woman, this stained bride, comes to the well and Jesus asks her for a drink. Now before we get into this request, which is very significant in the story, I want to focus a bit more on how John presents Jesus as the perfect bridegroom, as the perfect husband. To do this, I want to jump down to verse 17. Where after talking to the woman for a little while, Jesus tells the woman to go call your husband. Go call your husband, he says. And the woman responds in verse 17 saying, I have no husband. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman at the well had been married five different times. Five different times, a husband either died or divorced her. This woman, who was experiencing the depths and the despair of hopelessness, had given up on finding a husband. And now the sixth man that she is living with is not her husband at all. Rather, in her life, than receiving security from a husband, she received scrutiny. Rather than being loved, she was languished. Rather than devotion, she received divorces. Time and time again, this woman was cast aside by one husband after another, in the same way that she would go back to that well, day after day, for water, hoping to be satisfied, to quench her thirst. In the same way, she had gone time and time again to a husband, hoping to find one who would love her, protect her, care for her, and lead her. And then, on this day, she comes to the well once again, and who is sitting there but the true bridegroom? This woman had been married five times, five different husbands, and living with a sixth man. And Jesus now sits at the well as the seventh man, the final, the complete, the perfect husband. This woman, after going through six men, is looking for rest, 
now comes to Christ, who presents himself as a seventh, the Sabbath rest, the peace that she had longed for. I really appreciated Jack's talk yesterday as far as the Sabbath being a canceling of debt. This woman comes to the well with an awful lot of baggage, an awful lot of debt, and the true Sabbath husband is one who is able to take care of that for her. Jesus is the bridegroom of the new creation. He is the one who will bring this woman into his eternal new covenant rest. She will be brought out of the labor and turmoil, out of the shame and bondage of her old vows, and be brought into Christ as a new creation, as his bride. So when Jesus arrives at the well, he does so as the bridegroom, the true bridegroom of the new creation, and he meets his bride, the Samaritan woman. So coming back to verse 7, where Jesus asks her for a drink. Verse 7 again says, The woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The church fathers go out of their way to make the point that Jesus is not asking her for a drink because he's thirsty. They're saying, listen, it really doesn't have a lot to do with his physical thirst, but rather Jesus is thirsting for her faith, for her salvation, for her love. Augustine writes, Jesus was not thirsty for water, but rather he was thirsty for the woman's faith. He thirsts for her salvation. And Augustine, as usual, is correct. Theologically speaking, for Jesus to ask this woman for a drink is far more consequential than just quenching his thirst. Even the sense of the verb pino, to drink, is a word that is often used metaphorically, meaning to partake in something, to absorb, to be united to something. We see this in Hebrews chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians 11 and Revelation 14. And in a similar sense, the drink offerings of the Old Covenant were acts of worship, where we are symbolically poured out for God's consumption. That is, we are absorbed into God himself. And as we develop, or as will be developed in the following verses, we can see that Jesus asks this woman for a drink. When he asks for a drink, he is asking for her whole life. He is asking for union. He is asking her to be his bride. Now there is much involved in this request for a drink, yet the woman has no idea what Jesus is saying. She has no idea. In fact, there's almost a comedic element with the woman's response throughout this story where she just doesn't quite seem to get what Jesus is saying. The woman does not yet know that the one sitting in front of her is the great bridegroom, the one that she had longed for, the one that is able to take care of her sins, to cleanse her of her shame. She has no idea who it is that is sitting in front of her. She doesn't know of his power or authority. She doesn't know of his glory or majesty or sovereignty. She does not yet know that he will give her, give her himself and that he will bring her into himself as his bride. And when this bridegroom arrives and meets this woman and asks for a drink, he does not do so empty-handed, but rather he comes with a gift. In verse 10, we see Jesus responding to the woman when he says, If you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, 
and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus here presents himself as the gift giver of God's gift for the bride. So what is the gift that he's talking about? When we read this, when we see this gift of God, what is it that Jesus has in mind? If you look at commentaries, you will see that this gift is often attributed to the grace that comes from Christ, or the forgiveness, or uh, the love of Christ, or even the gospel or salvation. And all of these most certainly correlate to the gift, yet they are not in themselves the gift Jesus is ready to give his bride. In verse 10, we see that the gift of God that Jesus gives is described as living water. Yet this is not overly helpful either, as living water is yet a symbol of something else. The metaphorical language Jesus is using was obviously confusing to the woman because in verses 11 through 14, she is thinking that Jesus has access to another well that's better than this one. She hears living water and she's thinking, well, it's not stagnant water, it's living water that comes from rivers or wells. All wells are living water. So she is wondering, where are you going to get this water from? This is the only well and you don't have a bucket to draw water. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Is there another well here maybe with better water than this one? Jesus continues to describe this living water for the woman in verses 13 and 14. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That is of the well present in their conversation. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now the woman is intrigued. Now she wants this gift of living water. She comes to this well day after day, yet 30 minutes later, she's already beginning to get thirsty again. Day after day, she was thirsty and never fully satisfied. So if Jesus is saying that we can receive this gift, that she has uh, access to this living water that would cause her to never have to come back to this well, she said, let me have some. I would love to have that water. I, would, I don't have to come back here day after day. And not only that, not only will it quench her thirst, but it also wells up to eternal life. This sounds like some high quality water. And she really wants some. Verse 15, it says that the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You know, she's so close. She's closer than she was at the beginning. She's, she's closer to understanding what this gift is, but still not quite. So to come back to our question, what is the gift of water? If it's not living water from Jacob's well or another well in the area, what is this gift? What is this living water? The answer, I believe, is concealed within the phrase gift of God. It is a gift of God. The New Testament writers will do this often where they will use grammatical constructions that can be translated in one way or another. The phrase gift of God can be translated as a subjective genitive, gift of God, which we, most of us have in our, uh, in our Bibles, or it can be translated as an objective genitive, which would read the gift who is God. And as Edith Humphrey suggests, the phrase Doreen to Theu is most certainly meant to be translated as an objective genitive, the gift who is God. The gift who is God. What is the gift? The gift is God himself. 
God himself is the gift of living water. God has always been the gift of living water for his people. Always, from the beginning to the end. Jeremiah 2, we have Yahweh speaking, and he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. He's always been the living water for his people. And not only in Jeremiah, but Jesus himself, a few chapters later in John chapter 7, stands up on the last day of the feast, and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. The living water, the gift who is God, is the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Trinity, God himself. The Holy Spirit is the wedding gift that comes from, proceeds from, the Father and the Son to his bride, the church. The woman thought she was going to get some water that would physically quench her thirst forever. Yet Jesus is offering the true living water, the gift who is God, and this gift will quench the thirst of her parched soul. This gift of living water, the gift of the bridegroom that he gives to his bride, is seen further developed in Revelation chapter 21, where the one who upon the throne says to the one who thirsts, I will give of the spring of the water of life as a gift. So, Christ is the bridegroom who comes with a gift for his bride, the gift who is God himself. And now, we see that this bridegroom comes not only with a gift, but this bridegroom, this true husband, the seventh man, also comes making wedding vows, a new covenant with this woman. The section that we just looked at with the gift began in verse 7 when Jesus asks for a drink. He asks for a question, or he asks a question to her. And then we see in verse 15 that that section concludes with the woman asking Jesus for a drink. She is asking for this living water. And then we see how Jesus responds to her request for this living water that Jesus offers. Jesus knows she still doesn't quite understand that the living water is God himself. So to help her understand the gift of God, he makes a second request. The first, found in verse 7, get me a drink. The second request is now in verse 16, where Jesus turns the conversation in another direction. It says this, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus tells her, Go call your husband, and she denies having a husband. I think it's amazing how easily we can identify with this woman. Jesus begins to poke just a little bit at that shameful part that she is concealing, uh, and she says, I don't, I don't even have a husband. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus will come to us so often and say, go get your pride. I say, oh, Lord, I don't have pride. Go get your hidden secrets. I don't have any hidden secrets. Nothing is hidden from you, Lord. He tells us to go get our insecurities. And we say, we are confident in you, God. We trust you fully. I have no insecurities. 
Jesus tells us to go get that thing which we worship. We say, Lord, we don't have any idols. And Jesus responds and saying, you are right in saying that you don't have an idol. In fact, you have five idols. You have money, the desire for personal safety, the need for approval, the opinions of others, and entertainment are all idols in your life. Go and get them. He is telling her and he is telling us to not deny or ignore the sin that we have, but to bring them to him. For he is the one who can restore and wash his bride from the stains of her guilt and shame. For he is the groom who works to purify his bride. The woman responds in verse 19. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. I perceive you are a prophet. Uh, You just said something about me. You have information about me that would be impossible for you to have otherwise unless you were a prophet. And I think we should notice how this woman's perspective of Jesus has developed throughout the story and continues to develop. Do you remember when Jesus first came to her at the well, she responds to him as a Jew. She's a Samaritan woman. Samaritans and Jews do not like each other at this time. Uh, But as the story progresses, we see that her clarity, her understanding, the mirror that is Christ begins to show who she is and starts to reveal who he is with greater clarity. It starts with her in verse 9 saying, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask for water from me, a Samaritan woman? And then it goes on in verse 15, her view of Jesus becomes a little bit more honorific where she calls him, sir, Kyrios, Lord, sir, give me this water that you have, a term of respect. And now when Jesus reveals that he knows about these five husbands and the man that she's currently shacked up with, she says, you're a prophet, Jew, sir, prophet. In verse 29, we see her declare that he is the Christ. And then by the time we get to the end of the story, In verse 42, she and the people of Sychar from her home declare in doxological praise that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. It is as if the veil of the bride is being lifted as she is ushered into the most holy place where she sees Christ for who he really is. This ought to be the goal of our teaching and our preaching and our counseling and our leading and everything that we do in ministry. This ought to be the goal to lift the veil of Christ's bride and our own churches so that she can see Christ for who he really is. Our churches ought to come to Christ with unveiled faces. And we have the great privilege of leading her into his presence, into the Holy of Holies, so that she might see him in all of his glory. The prophet title comes naturally as, she reveal, as he reveals knowledge of her shameful past. And yet this prophetic uh, knowledge of Jesus causes her to be a little uncomfortable. In fact, very uncomfortable. So what does she do after being exposed before Jesus? She quickly wants to change the subject. Sir, you're a prophet. Let's talk about something else. Let's not talk about these sins that I have. Let's not talk about my past. Uh, But rather, let's talk about worship. Let's talk about where we worship God. A quick diversion to ease the awkwardness. Verse 20 says, our fathers worship on 
this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So the woman, in her diversion, asks about the contrast of worship between Jews and Samaritans. Jesus responds in verse 21, brilliantly, as always, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Woman, gune in Greek, which can also be wife. Wife, believe me, listen to me, Christ said. The hour is coming when to worship the Father will not require this mountain nor Jerusalem. The hour is coming when Christ himself will be set up as the true temple, the true mountain where people are to worship the Father. Christ himself is the mountain. Christ himself is the tabernacle. Christ himself is the temple. As we see John already developing for us in John chapter 1 and in John chapter 2 and will continue to be developed in chapter 5 and so on. We see the fullness of this tabernacle, of this Christ being veiled in the tabernacle glory of the bridegroom when Christ dwells in the midst of his bride in Revelation 21. He dwells in the midst of her as, the, as God dwelt in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. And it is there that she drinks freely from the living water. In verse 22, he moves from the temple tabernacle imagery to that thing which flows from mountains, uh, ultimately the bride's salvation. In verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now here he says salvation is from the Jews. What he does not say is salvation is from Judaism. He is not saying that salvation is coming from temple adherence or obedience to the law perfectly. He's not speaking of the law or the, or the sacrifices or the whole temple cult at this time. When he says that salvation comes from the Jews, he is speaking of himself. Not only is Christ the temple, but he is also the salvation which flows from the temple. This is where we start to pick up on the implicit wedding vows or the, the, the characteristics of the covenant that Jesus makes with his bride ultimately here in chapter 4. Jesus presents himself as the all-sufficient groom that the bride desperately needs. He is the one. She asks for living water. He says that the living water flows from the one that is standing right in front of you. She longs for a husband. The true husband is standing right in front of her. Where will God meet her? This mountain, that mountain, this temple, or that temple? The true temple is standing right in front of her. Where will she find salvation? True salvation is standing right in front of her. If we see this as a wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom are now facing each other, and Jesus is rehearsing his vows to her. I will give you living water. I will give you the gift who is God. I am your true husband. I am your true temple. I am your true salvation. This woman is now undone by the words of Christ. She knows that there is something different about this Jesus, something powerful, something perhaps even divine. She says to him in verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus responds to the woman's words with words that are so powerful that at one point could knock an entire army onto the ground, where he responds in verse 26, I am he, ego, a me. 
At this point, not a whole lot else matters to the woman. She believes her life has now been transformed. If this is a wedding ceremony, she just said, I do. For she has come face to face with the living God. She has received the wedding gift. She has consumed the living water. She has been brought into the new temple. She has received God's salvation. She has been brought into the arms of the true husband, the Messiah, the Christ. And now for the very first time in her life, she has hope. So much hope that she leaves her water pail there at the well and runs to her town to tell everybody about who she has just met. She goes to tell everybody about this one who is the Christ. What we see developing from here is a wedding feast that comes. We see that she goes off to her city to find her people, to bring them back. And then in verse 30, it tells us that all the people start to make their way out of the city to see Jesus. So the wedding feast is what follows. Now, there are many things that go into a great wedding celebration, a great reception, uh, good music and dancing, heartfelt toasts and mighty cheers to the bride and the groom, a first dance, uh, throwing the bouquet of flowers and so on. But at the absolute center of any wedding and any celebration is food. It's the cutting of the cake. It's feasting with friends and family. It is drinking good drink and feasting on good food. The Eucharistic wedding supper of the Lamb is described in Isaiah 25 when Isaiah says, On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. A wedding is one of the greatest of all celebrations in food and drink, is how God has created us to celebrate. So verse 31 shifts the scene from the folks from Sychar coming to see Jesus based off of the woman's testimony to then Jesus' conversation with his disciples, explaining to them what had just taken place. Verse 31 through 33 says this, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat. You do, not, you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? This is the question the disciples have, and this is the question that we need to ask of the text. Who brought Jesus food to eat? What is this food that he speaks of? It was the disciples' responsibility to make sure their rabbi was taken care of. They went to buy food, they come back, and now Jesus is saying he has food that they're unaware of. What is this food? Now, as we all know, having spent any time in the Theopolitan sphere, that food is one of the great themes of the Bible and one of the great themes of life. When you come into God's presence, you come into a feast. Both in the temple and the tabernacle, fresh bread and wine are available at all times. The Garden of Eden is marked out by the Tree of Life where Yahweh comes and he dwells with his people there, feasting. After the flood, the first things that Noah does is sacrifice to God and plant a vineyard for wine. The whole sacrificial system is about feasting with God. The people eat their part of the sacrifice. The priest gets his portion. Yahweh feasts on his portion. There were feasts throughout the Old Testament, such as the Feast of Booze and the Passover Feast. The new covenant likewise is marked out by food and drink. Eucharistically speaking, 
we see, as, as Drew brought up wonderfully in his talk, uh, that food in the Eucharist is God's hospitality. It's his invitation to us to come into his presence and feast, but not to stay there, but to go out likewise, bringing that bread and wine to the nations. We see in John chapter 6 that Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He also says that he is, uh, or he calls his people, saying, if you're to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And of course, the Eucharist is that ongoing feast where we come into the presence of God and he serves us there. The book of Revelation concludes with the tree of life and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Eating and drinking is a big deal to God from beginning to end. It is near and dear to the heart of God and it is absolutely crucial for believers to walk and live faithfully before him. So when Jesus says that he has food to eat that we don't know about, we ought to slow down and savor his words. So let's look at verse 34 where Jesus explains this food that he has to eat. He says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The food of Christ is this, to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. But what is this work that, we are to, that he is to accomplish? The idea of accomplishing or finishing God's work is one that stretches throughout the entire Bible. And John himself highlights this multiple times throughout his gospel. We see Jesus refer to the accomplishment of this work in his high uh, royal prayer, high priestly prayer of John 17, where he says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is the same work that Jesus accomplishes upon the cross. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In all three of these texts, the word for finished or accomplished comes from the root word telos. The telos is the goal, the end, the completion of a project. For Jesus, it's to finish or to complete the project that God gives. So what is this project that God has given Jesus to complete? What is the will and the work of the Father that Christ has come to accomplish? In short, the project Jesus has come to accomplish is to bring about the salvation of the world. This is his food, the salvation of the world. The salvation of the world is not just the removal of guilt. It is not just justification. It is not just going to heaven when we die. But biblical salvation is a bridal union of bride and groom. Biblical salvation is being brought into the very life of God. It is being united to God. It is becoming one with God. As Athanasius said, for the Son of God became man so that we might become God. Or elsewhere, he says, he became what we are so that he might make us what he is. Biblical salvation is the mutual indwelling of God and man. Through the Spirit, Christ dwells in us, and we, through the Spirit, dwell in Christ. This unification of God and man, heaven and earth, is what salvation is all about. This is the project. This is the work. This is the telos that Christ came to accomplish. This union or this consummation of the marriage, this theodic reality, is what this, is what this story points us toward. 
This is the food of Christ. And even the fact that Jesus calls it food is important and significant. The role of food in our lives cannot be overstated. Food sustains us. Food gives us energy. Good food will make us healthy while junk food will make us sick. When we eat food, the food feeds our bodies. We consume it and it becomes part of us. The saying, you are what you eat, is not just metaphorically true, but is literally true. And this is beautiful imagery, that salvation is being brought into, united with God, as food is brought into and united with the body. There's much to contemplate here, that salvation is not just a destination, but rather it is the life lived together in Christ. I, I fear, I, I know so much of the popular view of salvation within many churches gets reduced down to this almost eschatological prosperity gospel. Like, as long as I can believe the right thing, I'm going to have crowns in heaven. If I live a certain way, I'll get a bigger mansion with more square footage. Uh, if, if I really pour myself out, I'll have lots and lots of jewels and, and rewards in heaven and so on. And we begin to think about salvation as uh, this, again, eschatological prosperity uh, telos that we long for. This is not at all the way the Bible, is just, the Bible describes salvation. It is so much more than this. Salvation is being fused together with Christ in the present. Salvation is singing and shouting and living and feasting with God's people in Christ. For Augustine, writes Robert Wilkin, salvation is mutual fellowship in God. Salvation is mutual fellowship in God. Salvation is being united with Christ. It is becoming, in Christ, the true man. This is the food of Christ. This is the will and work of the Father. Father John Baird notes uh, in a very incredible way this salvation project, this food of Christ, if we could apply it here, does not just begin at the Incarnation. Right? This is not something that just happens when Jesus puts on flesh and dwells among us, but rather this project began all the way back on the sixth day of salvation. Bear notes that in the first five days of creation, God speaks with imperatives. Let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let the waters gather here. Let there be a firmament and so on. Yet when he comes to the sixth day, the creation of man, he does not use the imperative verb in the Septuagint, but rather he switches to the subjunctive. The subjunctive is not a command like the imperative, let there be, but rather it is a verb that denotes a project or a process. Let us begin to make man in our image. This project of creating mankind into the perfect image of God with perfect union with God was progressing splendidly as Adam and Eve were maturing in the first few hours of their existence, and then it went sideways. <laughs> As sin entered the world and fractured and disrailed this project. Yet Yahweh, God, did not give up on it. He did not throw the project aside. In fact, this has been his project from the beginning. In his divine sovereignty, he determined to enter the world as man, as the God-man, to achieve what Adam failed to achieve. Christ came as the second Adam, the better Adam. Jesus put on flesh. He tabernacled with us as the perfect human, the perfect image of God. And his telos was to restore, to accomplish what Adam destroyed. 
Jesus came and he defeated Satan, sin and death upon the cross. He conquers that which corrupts. Jesus came and defeated everything that would seek to derail this project. He is the fulfillment of this sixth day project that, Jesus, that God began in creation. The new Adam, the perfect image bearer of God. Thus, in Christ, we are united to this perfect man. In Christ, we are new creations. In Adam, bearing God's image rightly. Christ's food is the salvation of the world. His food is to bring the world into himself so that the world might be saved in Christ. Paul understands this glorious truth where in Acts 17 he writes, For in him we live and move and have our being. This is the work God gave Jesus to do. The mission of Jesus to accomplish is to bring his people into himself as one brings food into the body. So Christ brings all people into himself. This is the wedding feast. This is the food of Christ, the salvation of the nations. Jesus goes on to explain the food analogy to his disciples when he tells them to look and says that the fields are white for harvest. And it has been suggested, and I agree, that what Jesus is telling his disciples to lift his eye, their eyes up to and what uh, they are to look at would be these Samaritans coming across the field to Jesus. He says, this is the field, this is the feast, this is the food that I am to bring into myself. All of these people from among the nations coming to see Christ because of this woman's testimony. They are the food Jesus is hungry for. It is their salvation. It is their lives that Jesus is about to bring into himself. They are the fruit of the harvest, the spoils of the laborer. They are the offspring of this marriage union. Jesus hungered for the food of salvation, the salvation of the Samaritan people. And the woman at the well, Jesus' new bride, likewise hungered with the hunger of Christ. She went and told everyone about the Messiah. And this wedding feast concludes with the people of Samaria believing, trusting, and becoming one with Christ. For they have all joined the Samaritan woman as the bride. Not many brides, but one bride. Through their faith in Christ, they are brought into Christ as the eternal covenant bride. Their salvation was his food. The wedding feast at Sychar that day was glorious, for there were many who came to trust in him. And I would hope as we go uh, from this week that we will go with the motivation and the confidence to lift the veil of the bride so that she might see her bridegroom with more clarity and that we might with the woman and with Christ hunger, with the hunger of Christ for the salvation of the world. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.